Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This narrative about the, the history of sin, if you will, is a little bit different from the way we might tell the story from a Jewish standpoint. In the Old Testament, the story of sin begins with the garden. And we get the narrative in the garden about the fall of humanity. But now Paul is speaking to a Hellenistic audience, and he's taking what you might think of as, as more of a history of ideas approach or like a high-level approach. He's talking about the uh, origin of sin, the root of sin, the nature of sin, and its effects on the human beings who have fallen into sin. As he speaks, he uses this pronoun they, them, they have done these things. These things are true of them. But there's going to be a turn later on that you have to keep in mind where it's going to turn out that we're all under this condemnation, that these are things that are true for all of us. So as we hear those words, they and them, don't imagine that we are not included in this condemnation, that we're not subject to the same wrath that the Gentiles are, that the Hellenists are. This observation that uh, Paul makes here, the, the thing that we're contemplating is, is the passage that gives rise to a comment of John Calvin's that I always disagreed with. It's always helpful when people tend to assume, oh, well, you know, whatever Calvin says, you're just going to believe it. It's always helpful to be able to point to examples where you differ, right? Where I think you got it wrong. It's understandable. He was writing back in the 1500s. He didn't have all the advantages uh, that I possess. And so occasionally, of course, he's going to misspeak. He's going to, you know, go too far, something like that. Uh, The line that I'm referring to, the thing that Calvin said that always rubbed me the wrong way was actually this, this phrase that's captured in the title of the sermon. He says that uh, the human heart is a factory of idols, or to put it more specifically, he says man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory or forge of idols. Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, which is why whenever some good blessing comes into your life, if someone gives you a nice gift, you get something new and you're really pleased about it, and you show your sanctimonious friends at church, oh, look, look at my new car, look at my new house, or whatever it is, someone always says, or if they don't say it, you can see in the expression, well, don't make an idol out of that. Don't make an idol out of it. I always hated that. I always hated that, for one thing, because whatever new thing I had, I was always really excited about, and I didn't want people telling me that I shouldn't feel the way I felt about it, but also because idolatry is a real thing, not just a metaphorical thing. Like, idolatry that is condemned in the Old Testament is literal. The problem uh, of the golden calf is not that people metaphorically, like, had this nice statue and then started loving it too much. They literally made an idol, and they used it, they worshipped it as if it had delivered them. Idolatry is real, and I always felt like talking about it in that sort of soft, metaphorical way somehow devalued that reality. And it was 
also helpful to be able to point to one thing or look, eh, I don't like the way Calvin put that. I don't like, I don't like it. Part of the reason why I was able to entertain that feeling for so long is that when I read Romans 1, all I really saw in Romans 1 was verses 19 and 20, what we looked at last time. That's the passage that's kind of the springboard passage to talk about general revelation, the idea that God has revealed himself in all creation. And because I was interested in systematic theology, I was interested in big ideas like that, for me, that's what Romans 1 was really there for. It was there to give you sort of a backstop for having a positive view of creation, for having a positive view of the truth of God revealed in all things if you have eyes to see. And then after that part, Paul just kind of goes on about all this sin stuff, and, and my eyes would glaze over. Eventually, though, I managed to read through the whole passage. And realize what we talked about last time, that what Paul says about general revelation, he's not making that point as an end in itself. He is building a case here, and what's important about the case is the way that it proceeds. And as I came to understand what he writes in the words that we're looking at this morning, I came to see that that skull-capped, pointy-bearded reformer had beat me again. I thought I'd found a moment where I could look down my nose at him, but he was actually right. Or at least he was correctly interpreting the point that Paul is making. Because what Paul is doing in this text is saying, if you want to understand the nature of sin, if you want to understand your struggle with sin, you have to think of it in terms of idolatry. If you want to know what the struggle of your life is, you do need to go back that Old Testament idolatry and ask yourself some hard questions. So when he says that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, the thinking behind that statement is something like this. God has made all human beings in his image. He's made us to reflect his glory. So we have within us this propensity towards worship. All human beings have within them this seed of religion that leads us to worship. Even those of us who deny that there is a God at all still hold to like moral convictions and, 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 and ideas that are essentially religious in their function. Because of sin, the fact that we all have this desire within us, it's not a good thing. We all, as human beings, are are worshipers by nature, but because of our sin, we worship the wrong thing. So what is normal for us is idolatry. Fallen human beings have a desire within them to worship, but what we desire is a tangible deity. We want a God we can see. We want a God we can touch. And because God does not reveal himself, because the God of the universe is invisible to our eyes. In our pride and in our boldness, we begin to imagine a God according to our own capacity. The Bible teaches God has made us in his image, and what we do is a reversal of that. We begin to think of God in our own image. Think of him on our own terms. 
And once we inwardly conceive of God in our own image, then we express this idea of God in our work. It's not just confined to our minds and our hearts. It's expressed in our action as well. The mind begets an idol, Calvin says. The hand gives it birth. The mind begets an idol. The hand gives it birth. Scripture says that as human beings, our struggle is a struggle against sin. All of us are implicated in it. All of us have this corrupt, this fallen nature. To understand what sin has done to us, we have to confront our own tendency towards idolatry, our own desire for a tangible deity, a God we can touch. That desire hasn't left us unaffected. Idolatry takes a toll on us. It takes a toll on our hearts. It takes a toll on our minds. We don't act on our knowledge of God. There are consequences. Paul says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. He speaks of a knowledge of God in all creation. He says that because of that, they, the sinners, those who reject him, the unrighteous, us, are without excuse because despite this knowledge, we have not honored him as God. We have not glorified him. And we have not given thanks to him. So knowledge of God should lead to worship of God. In Paul's mind, there's not, there's not a situation where you have knowledge of God, but you somehow don't worship him. Right? These things are, are connected. Right? The, the thoughts, the intentions of the heart, and the actions of the person are all together, organically, cannot be separated. Knowledge of God should lead to worship of God. And when he says they did not honor him, it doxes him. They did not uh, doxologize him. They did not give glory to him. They did not thank him. They did not express gratitude towards him. But this honoring and giving thanks, these are actions of worship. He's taking two examples of a larger thing, worship. And essentially saying, although they knew God, they did not worship him. The two feelings of adoration and gratitude really cover the whole province of religious feeling. It's all of worship, all of true worship that is neglected, despite the knowledge. There is a guilty knowledge, but we have rejected what should flow naturally from it. The knowledge should lead to worship, and despite the knowledge... We have neglected worship, and there have been terrible results, Paul says. When we think about what the plan of salvation should be, you look at the human condition and you think, what should be necessary to fix this? We tend to underestimate what is necessary because we do not fully appreciate the effects of our sin. We imagine that what the Bible's saying is because these ancient people ate the wrong thing in the garden, 
Now some sort of a solution is required. Some bad thing was done, and now some good thing needs to be done to balance it out. What Paul is suggesting, though, is that the damage, the results of our pattern of sinful behavior make the problem much worse. When we minimize sin, we imagine we're much easier to save than we are, in other words. We minimize the extent of the difficulty. We are made in God's image. But if we don't worship him, then there is another force at work that isn't just doing an insult to us, wounding us once, but is constantly at work in our lives, is constantly causing suffering. There is a catastrophic toll that is a result of our sinfulness. Our idolatry inflicts futility and darkness upon us. Paul says, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile here, you might think uh, of vanity or foolishness. And when he says in their thinking, he's not referring to just like a specific thought, like they had a bad idea. This means more like the flow of thought or the movement of thought, their way of thinking became futile. Dialogismos is the word in Greek. Uh, dialogical is a word that's, that's derived from that dialogue, this idea of sort of the structure of thought as a result of idolatry becomes futile in its functioning. There, because of sin is an effect on thinking. Futility characterizes the way of thinking. The mind has become a trap. It's become a maze that we cannot reason our way out of because our reasoning has been corrupted. The thing that we ought to be able to rely on most actually doesn't serve us as we think it does. Our thinking becomes futile, and our hearts are darkened. We cannot think our way out of our predicament, but we also cannot feel our way out either. We cannot trust in a moral intuition that will guide us, the will, our instinct, a a deep moral inclination also has been affected. All these aspects of what you might think of as our inner light, as people made in God's image, all of this is affected by our idolatry. We do not worship the God who gave us these things, and these gifts, as a result, are corrupted. They turn against themselves. You can see these effects individually when you consider your own life, but you can also see them collectively when you think about just human beings in general and the history of our movements of thought, our philosophies, our way of approaching the world is affected by sin, Paul says. Those things are tainted. We cannot, through philosophy, find our way out. Our moral judgments, not only as individuals, but as societies, are darkened. There is no way to do this thing that you're always hearing Christians yearn for, which is to get back to the good old days, to get in a time machine and go back to the golden age when everybody was Christian and society did everything the way it was meant to do. That never existed. That never existed. Like, you could go back in time. You choose the place. 
You can go back to Geneva in the days of Calvin. You won't like it. You can go back to the New Testament church, the pure church that so many people think that if only we could restore the New Testament church, everything would be perfect. But, but you know, most of what we know about the New Testament church, we know from the New Testament, which was largely written because of how bad the New Testament church was. It was not a golden age of Christian practice. It was full of sin, immorality, full of exactly the kinds of things that Paul is talking about here. The solution is not to get our heads right, to start thinking clearly about things. It's also not to get our hearts right in the sense of, of we need to start feeling the right way. The problem is too great for the solution to be so small. Now, the fact that we do have reason, which is a great gift, the fact that we do have a moral intuition that even in the darkest times guides us, these things testify to the fact that despite sin, the image of God, that light has not been eclipsed. The fact that we all have them, the fact that all human beings, regardless of their creed, regardless of their circumstances, have some vestige of these abilities is a reason for hope. But the fact that that, that's all we've got, that none of us, no society in history in any circumstance has ever gotten beyond this human condition, that testifies to the extent of the corruption. This idolatry, this refusal to worship the God who made us, it takes a toll on the mind and on the heart. But there's something more, and I would argue something more important that Paul's trying to say about idolatry here. It's not just the effects of sin on the intellect and on the heart. There's also something about the, the, the humiliation of idolatry. That, that Paul wants to address. Idolatry isn't just having a terrible effect on you. Idolatry is literally beneath you. Claiming to be wise, he says, they became fools. It's hard to think of a, a starker contrast. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, the opposite of what they thought they were. The futility and the darkness that he's just spoken to, they weren't obvious to those who were affected by them. It was just the opposite. Although their way of thought was futile and although their hearts were corrupted, they didn't look at themselves and see themselves that way. What they perceived was just the opposite. As they were becoming fools, their claims to wisdom were boldest. Paradoxical a kind of exchange, wisdom and foolishness. This is an indictment of human beings, not at our worst, but at our best. He's not saying that if you look at history, you will see occasionally some truly depraved things that human beings have done. He's saying if you look at human history, you'll see that even the best, even at our wisest, there was a profound foolishness at work. And part of being foolish is blindness to our true condition. You're never more of a fool than when you think you're operating at your wisest level. I'm speaking from experience. 
you think about the, the times you have humbled yourself the most, the biggest mistakes you've made, the most mortifying things that you have exposed yourself to, self-owns, so to speak, they exemplify the truth that pride goeth before fall. It's when we think we're at our best, when it seems as if that the world is at our feet, that we demonstrate just how blind we are to our true condition. They don't think they're fools. They're confident in the rightness of their thinking. They're confident in the rightness of their hearts. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Not one, he says. He doesn't look down on the earth and say, well, at least the good people are in church. Not one. Wisdom and foolishness are antithetical, but they are mirror images of one another, opposites of one another that in weird ways copy one another. We have become, because of sin, the opposite of what we think we are. That's the extent of the difficulty that we face. And Paul says, you know what? You're better than this. You're better than this. Listen to the way he describes idolatry. He says in verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, for icons, likenesses, resembling mortal man. So you're made in the image of God, but instead you worship a God who looks like you, who's like on your level. But it gets worse, mortal man and birds. You're a human being made in the image of God and you worship a bird? Gets worse. Animals and creeping things. Insects, bugs, cockroaches, that sort of thing. You're a human being made in the image of God and and you fashion a God that looks like a cockroach, a scarab to worship? That's beneath you. This exchange, if you think of Wisdom and foolishness as as antithetical, here's a more explicit exchange that is taking place here. God is being traded for an idol. God is glorious. God is immortal. He cannot be worshipped in an image. He forbids it. He forbids his people to worship him in an image, to make a graven image of him which makes sense when you consider he's done this already. He has made his image. He has made human beings in his image. And if you want to see him in the flesh, you must look to the image of God in man, preeminently in Jesus Christ. But we are not permitted to do this. Idols are beneath us. They are fashioned after created things that descend in order of glory from human beings. 
when Paul says these things, he's actually channeling a really strong current in Old Testament prophecy. When Old Testament prophets talk about idolatry, they don't do it in sensitive ways. They don't take into account the feelings of the idolater and, and coax him gently. Now, Paul, Paul can be sensitive. At Mars Hill, surrounded by idols, he finds one that's dedicated to the unknown God, and he very cleverly says, I've come to proclaim to you the God you have worshipped without knowing his name. Right? That's sensitive. Isaiah maybe wouldn't roll that way. The way Old Testament prophets talk about idols, there's a little bit more of an edge. It cuts a little bit more. And I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter 44, because here Paul sounds a little bit like Isaiah when he gives us this sliding scale, gods that look like men, that look like birds, that look like animals, that look like creeping things. You're meant to see that there's a lowering that's taking place. And Isaiah does this, I think, better than any other prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9 and going through to verse 20. It's a long narrative, descriptive passage. And it's one of those passages, if, if you have not seen this before, this is worth writing down and going back to, to read over and meditate on, because it really does encapsulate something about the futility of idolatry in the eyes of God. So Isaiah writes these words, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arms. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? 
the futility of it illustrated. Like the tree is planted, it is nourished by the rain. This is creation working. Right? This is creation in all of its glory and also working to provide for man. The creation that God has given human beings dominion over. He's chopping the tree down. He's building a fire to warm himself, to bake bread, to be sustained. All of that is good. And then he takes part of it and he fashions a God to worship. It's not just wrong, it's also crazy. It's a humiliation. He's lowering himself to it. Literally, he has dominion over the tree. He chops it down. He uses it for his own needs. And then he fashions a God out of it and bows down before it and cannot see there is a lie in his right hand. That's the paradox. You give the creation form so that it might serve you. At the same time, you shape it into a God. And you bow down before it. You lower yourself before it. And this is beneath you. But this is what our sin does to us. Sin always humiliates those who serve it. Strips us of our dignity. Exposes us to shame. This is what it does. And we participate willingly. And think it's wise. The good news is that idolatry doesn't get the last word. Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is the first of three instances where Paul will speak about God's response to human sinfulness and use this term, uh, he gives them up to it. He gives them up to it. It reiterates a point that we made earlier, which is that one of the consequences of sin is that we're handed over to our sin. You don't dip your toe in the water and that's enough. The water pulls you in. It draws you deeper down. That's the here and now penalty for sin. There is a penalty to come, but there are also consequences here and now. Sin rules. And the rule of sin, the reign of sin, it propagates evil. It never stops where it starts. Our darkened hearts produce sinful desire. And these desires, these thoughts, they lead to action. They produce impurity. And when we do not honor God, we dishonor ourselves. Paul mentions specifically bodies, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because it's not just a question of, of the mind. It's not just thinking wrongly about things. The consequence of our sinful thoughts, our sinful desires, our sinful actions. And that sin pulls us deeper. But true worship pulls us up. He ends on a note of hope, which is good. We've gotten so much of the opposite of hope that suddenly there's a little outbreak of hope at the end. Verse 25, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, comma, who is blessed forever, amen. So you go from theology to doxology at the end. As he speaks the words that for Paul encapsulate the nature of human sin, he has to break out into worship 
as it were, as a counterbalance to the point that he's making. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You might think of that as a summary of, of what we do in our sin, that the root of all of our sin, all of our twisted desires, whatever they are, whatever direction they take, that all of them at their root are based in this exchange. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Exchanging the creator for something in creation, some creature that we put in his place, that we follow in his place, that we adore in his place, so that all sin can be understood, theologically speaking, as false worship. The problem of sin is the problem of false worship. We honor, we thank, we serve something in creation rather than the creator who made it all. And that that act dishonors us as image bearers and draws us deeper into corruption. We cannot get ourselves out of this bondage. And the only answer lies in that final doxological interjection. When Paul cannot say the words, he cannot finish the sentence. He can't put a period there after creature rather than creator without adding who is blessed forever. Amen just so you know where he stands, just so you see a glimpse of the solution. Like no matter how dire the problem is, how deep the problem of sin is, how great its grip is, and how far away the light seems, the light is as accessible as that seeming afterthought, not even a sentence, but a phrase, who is blessed forever. Amen. The only antidote to false worship is true worship. True worship of the Creator. If you go back to Isaiah 44 and you start reading and you get sucked in, you start reading more and more, not just the passage we looked at, but you keep going, eventually you're going to get to 45, verse 23. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That should sound vaguely familiar if you know your New Testament. That idea, that those words of Isaiah, they do come up again in the New Testament. They'll come up again in the book of Romans. When we get to Romans 14, which will be a while, we will find this idea recurring, but more famously in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when we think about knees bowing, we think mainly about uh, submission, like being brought to heel, being conquered and forced to bow down. But what if you change your thinking a little bit? I'm not saying there's none of that here, but in the same way that the way Paul suggests our lack of worship is to say that we do not honor God, we do not give thanks to him, you might think of this idea of every knee bowing, not just as as an assertion of the kingship of Jesus, of the reign of Jesus, but also of the worship of Jesus as well, because the posture of kneeling, true, it is one of submission, but first and foremost, submission before God, like kneeling, humbling ourselves before the God who made us. Now, to make the case for Jesus, Paul must first reveal the problem that Jesus came to fix. He has to show how bad the problem of sin is, how 
all-encompassing the grip of sin is in order to understand the solution that he reveals in Jesus Christ. Here, in these verses, we begin to see the heart of the problem, the root of the problem of sin. It's a worship problem, first and foremost. The reason that you struggle the way that you do with sin is because you were made to worship But you cannot, under your own strength, worship what you were made to worship. Instead, your desire fixates on the wrong things. Instead, we bow down to the wrong things. We humble ourselves before the wrong things. We humiliate ourselves before things we were meant to rule over. We lower ourselves for things God made us higher than. Our world, by sin, has been flipped upside down, but we don't see it. We think it's right side up. We think this is the way it's supposed to be. The good news isn't that if you realize that, like if you hear that and you really take it to heart, you can start worshiping correctly, and that will solve things. It won't. I'm not saying that if you hear this rightly or I explain it well enough, that you will be able to turn this around. You won't. The good news of the gospel is not that when you get the warning from God, if you listen and you amend your ways, then you will be pleasing in the sight of God and he will accept you. The reality is you can't do any of those things. And your efforts to do them, if you put faith in that, will deceive you. And in the same way that, that claiming to be wise, we become fools. Claiming to be righteous we become the most unrighteous we've ever been. The good news is this, that when we could not worship rightly, Jesus worshiped for us. When we could not honor God, Jesus honored him. When we could not serve him, Jesus served him. When we could not do what we were made to do as human beings, Jesus became a human being and did it for us. Your hope is not that you can somehow turn this around. Your only hope is that Christ has turned it around for you. Your heart is a factory of idols. Some of you will appreciate this for for heritage reasons that will quickly become obvious, but you know those wooden shoes that people used to wear, clogs? There's a word in English that is associated with the use of those shoes. You may not realize this because it comes to us from the French, but sabotage, sabotage, those wooden shoes are sabots. Sabotage, that act of destroying something, comes from the Industrial Revolution when suddenly Europe is populated by factories that threaten the human beings who used to do the work. And there's this dark vision of the future, and it's going to be all smokestacks and machines And a few human beings say, you know what? We're better than that. We're not going to go bow down before the smokestacks. We're going to take off our wooden clogs and throw them in the wheels. And they would break the machines. The guys who paid for the machines, they didn't like it. So they came up with a fancy French word, sabotage. They were sabotaging us. Your heart is a factory of idols. Jesus has come to sabotage it. Jesus has come to break the wheel to end the idolatry, 
to make it possible for us to worship the God who made us and to worship him in spirit and truth. And he calls us not to be good, not to amend our ways. He calls us to fall down and worship and put our hope in him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.